Hi, my name is Vina. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer here on Kids Talk Church History. Does the rain not fall equally upon all people? Does the sun not shine for all? And do we not all breathe the air in equal measure? Why then are you not ashamed to recognize only three languages and command the other nations and races to be blind and deaf? Who said this? A 16th century reformer, right? Wrong. It was a 9th century missionary, Cyril, who worked with his brother Methodius to bring the scriptures to the Slavs, even when it meant inventing an entirely new alphabet. I'm Emma, I'm 16, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm Christian, 13, and I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Mina, I'm 14, and I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'm Grace, I'm 11, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. Medieval people have very interesting names, Cyril and Methodius. Yeah, I know in a lot of like classic British literature, Cyril is still popular, but you don't really hear Methodius. Where were they from? So they were from Thessalonica in Greece. That's actually mentioned in the Bible because Paul went there and wrote less letters to the Thessalonians. It's a city close to the Slavic border where many people spoke both Greek and Slavic. When the ruler of Moravia asked for some missionaries to teach the gospel to his people, the Byzantine emperor thought these two brothers would be a good match. They spoke the language, they were highly educated, and they had been missionaries before. So how would you invent a new alphabet? Well, they wanted to bring the gospel to the Slavs in the Slavic language, but there was a huge problem. The Slavic, the Slavs didn't have a written language, so the brothers had to create an alphabet, and they also invented a new script, which is the basic of the Cyrillic script. So if I look up Cyrillic script, I can see what it looks like? Yes, it's quite interesting, and they started to translate the scriptures as well. In the quote you read, it looks like Cyril was talking to people who were trying to stop his work of translation. What happened there? So there was a region that was overseen by German bishops, and they didn't like the idea of translating the scriptures into Slavic. Some bishops said, we know of only three languages in which it's proper to praise God in writing, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Latin? The Bible was not originally written in Latin. Yeah, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek, so Latin was also a translation. It's odd that they would accept one translation, but not others. And I think there were some other translations of the Bible as well, at least parts of it. Anyhow, so Cyril died of serious illness in Rome, where he had gone to get the Pope's approval, and the German bishops exiled and imprisoned his brother Methodius for it for two and a half years in a German monastery. But I read that Methodius's followers were able to keep going in Bulgaria. I never knew that there were so many people fighting so hard to get the Bible in the language of the people before the Reformation. Yeah, it's really fascinating, and I'm excited to hear more from our special guest, Dr. Ed Smither, Professor of Intercultural Studies and History of Global Christianity at Columbia International University, and author of many books on church history and missions, including Missionary Monks. He's actually not new to our podcast. Some of you may remember, he came before to answer our questions about missions in Northern Europe. Dr. Smither, we're so glad you decided to come back. Thank you. It's good to be back. So I gave a quick overview of the life of Cyril and Methodius. Did I make any mistakes or leave out any important details? Um, No, that sounded really good. One thing I would say is that Methodius, before he was a missionary, was a governor. 
and the area that he was set over as a governor was a Slavic-speaking province. Uh, so, as you mentioned, both of the brothers grew up speaking Slavic in the in the marketplace in Thessalonica. And so these were missionaries already well-trained in the language of the people that they were going to, and that's part of why, why they were selected. Right. So I guess he would have been a pretty important person in Thessalonica if he became a governor? Yeah, they came from a noble family. Um, uh, Cyril was, was what would be today like a, a philosophy professor, very brilliant, uh, and Methodius was in government. Cool. So who were the Slavs? Well, it's basically when we talk about a group of people, it's a they would have been tribal peoples in what is today uh, Eastern Europe and then going into uh, into Russia. Sometimes the language is called Slavonic, but basically generally uh, a cluster of peoples that lived in that part of the world. Okay, so I read that the Bible was translated into some other languages much earlier than the ninth century. I think it was Syriac and Gies, one of the languages of Ethiopia. Were yeah. there any other languages? Well, we, we have to realize that Jesus spoke Aramaic and all of the gospel writers spoke Aramaic. The Apostle Paul's first language was a language called um, Cilician. Uh, so in one sense, the Greek New Testament that we have, the original was a translation uh, from the original authors. And that was so that the New Testament could be read in all of the Roman Empire. Um, but you're right, as, as the gospel moved out from Greek speaking areas in the second and third century, we see the, the Bible translated into Syriac, uh, into Latin. Uh, that was in, in North Africa, actually. Uh, you mentioned Ge'ez in Ethiopia, that was more in the fifth and sixth century. Um, but as the gospel went into Egypt, there was the Coptic language, uh, into Armenia, into Persia, uh, Georgia, and even among the Gothic peoples in, in what's now northern Germany. So there are six or seven Bible translations that go on pretty early. So that was a, that was a, a value of the early church. So why did the Western church think the Latin translation was okay and other translations were not? I think it's a combination of a couple things in your in the in the introduction you talked about the Bible could only be in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And that's what was called the trilingualist controversy. Uh, and it goes back to an interesting reading that when Jesus was on the cross uh, and the sign was nailed above him, King of the Jews, it was written in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, or uh, a derivative of Hebrew. And so some people interpret that as to mean that these are the only acceptable languages uh, for the Bible and for worship. Now, the interesting thing is no one Hebrew had died at that time. Um, so that would have put it down to just Greek and Latin. Um, if you look at the at the Roman Empire from North Africa till about Egypt and go up, people were speaking Latin in that part of the Roman Empire and then to the east of, of Egypt. Uh, it was Greek. And so these were the two dominant languages and cultures. Um, in the fourth century, um, the early Old Latin Bible was revised into what became called the Latin Vulgate. Um, and over time, some people really thought that the Latin Vulgate was like God's inspired word, and it can't get any better than this. And so when I was growing up there, I knew some people that really, really loved the King James Bible. Um, 
And they would even say things like it was good enough for Paul and Silas, as if Paul and Silas spoke English in the first century. Um, and so some people get really, really attached to a translation, to a language. Um, but you mentioned the German bishops and the German missionaries in Eastern Europe. Uh, they were really bringing their culture with them, which was the which was the Latin language and the Latin Bible, and were were kind of imposing that on the Eastern European peoples. Okay. Were there many countries like Moravia where the people didn't have a written language? Yeah, most actually. Um, in fact, even as we come into modern times, uh, we'll see people, we'll we'll see languages today that are spoken, but they're not written. And that's usually an indication that the people are more oral peoples than they are print learner peoples. We we give that distinction uh, in mission studies, but but if we go back even before Cyril and Methodius, we mentioned I mentioned the, the Bible in Armenia. Um, they actually had to develop an alphabet and even a dictionary and language rules and all of that um, to put the Armenian language, which had been spoken, in, into a written form. So what languages use the Cyrillic alphabet? Um, well, today would be a lot of the languages of, of Eastern Europe. And so uh, languages like Bulgarian and Serbian, of course, Russian, um, they use a, um, they use it, they call it Cyrillic now, which comes from uh, Cyril's name. Um, uh, and, and that was a later version of the language. But, um, but yeah, it, it became widespread throughout Eastern Europe and Russia. So it seems that the rulers helped to spread the gospel in their regions. Cyril and Methodius were invited by the ruler of Moravia, and the Byzantine emperor helped to send them there. And I read that the missionaries to Bulgaria were encouraged by the local king, and that a czar of Russia, Vladimir the Great, chose, ortho chose the Orthodox Church as their state church. That was a pretty common occurrence, right? Yeah, it really is. If you if you go back even before the Roman Emperor Constantine, who professed faith in the Christian God, uh, and then after that began to give money to build churches and relieved clergy from paying taxes and all of that, um, you do start to see like in, in what's now France, the Frankish King Clovis um, invited missionaries, um, even in Scandinavia in the 7th and 8th century, Danish and Swedish kings invited uh, Christian missionaries to come to the people. And so, so you do see much more of a closer alliance between church and state in this period. Part of, part of caring for the welfare of a people was its spiritual life as well. And so um, you mentioned earlier my book, Missionary Monks. One of the things that, that was fascinating about monks going to new places um, was that they would first go visit the king or tribal leader and preach the gospel to them and ask their permission to preach the gospel among their people. So, um, so yeah, very, very much a, a connection between uh, missionaries and state leaders. To follow up on that, um, when a king or ruler or whatever was converted, did the, the rest of the country like really become you know, whatever religion it was, or was it more of just like a title that was then associated with the country? Like, oh, now, you know, Russia is a Christian country, even if most of the people still worship the old thing, or was it yeah. really like people followed in the, the ruler's footsteps? Yeah, that's where it gets messy, doesn't it? When somebody tells you, when a government leader says, hey, this is what we believe now, 
Uh, is that how faith really works? And so if we go back to Armenia again, in the year 301, King Tiridat was baptized. And he said, we Armenians, we're now Christians. And he kind of mandated Christianity for the country. Um, and we can only wonder how much that sunk into people's, people's hearts. Um, however, about 100 years later, other missionaries came. They brought the Bible. They, they, they preached. They discipled people. Um, and we start to see Christianity taking hold there. So um, in, in, the interesting thing is it was actually Prince Vladimir's uh, grandmother, uh, Olga, who was interested in, um, in Christianity coming to Russia. And she in, invited missionaries to come. But there was great resistance on the part of the Russian no, nobility for two generations until the time of Vladimir. And so, so uh, it's, it kind of has mixed results. So I have read that Vladimir chose the Orthodox Church because he liked their fancy buildings. Is that true? You know, that's probably more what we would call a legend. Um, you see that in some of the chronicles. Um, um, although I, I think it's it's believable, um, because even if we look back into the Bible at a king like Solomon, who built himself a beautiful palace, but he was behind the building of the Jerusalem temple. Um, and I mentioned Constantine earlier, you will see kings and emperors through the years really caring about the beauty of sacred worship space. And so, um, so I, I, I find it believable that uh, Vladimir would be interested in orthodoxy because of the beautiful buildings that they, that they built for churches. I just don't know if we can support it historically. Okay, we heard that you wrote an article about Cyril and Methodius's mission to the Muslims. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, they were really, they were pretty incredible. Um, I think, um, yeah, they, they went to what would be today Muslims in Iraq and then later um, in, um, toward Russia, the Khazar people. Um, you know, uh, Cyril was a philosopher and so he was really good at Kind of thinking through ways to communicate Christian ideas. And one of the biggest things Muslims today and in history have struggled with is the idea, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, um, however, Muslims refer to God, and then they also talk about the Word of God, and both are eternal. Um, so the Word of God is like the Quran for Muslims. And so when what's interesting about Cyril, when he communicated uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he said, we believe in the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. Uh, because in the Bible, Jesus is called the Word of God, the Word that became flesh. And so, so he does a good job of using common ground ideas between Christian ideas and Muslim ideas um, to help make understood a difficult concept. And so... Um, so I, I think those were some of the, the ways that they were, um, you know, effective working among Arab Muslims and, and others. So, Dr. Smither, you were here with us before, so we're not going to ask you the same ending questions. Okay. So how about if we give us your favorite fact about the Middle Ages that no one has ever asked you about? Well, you know, uh, that's a good point. Um, I was, um, I, I saw you had sent that question earlier, and I thought about it for a while, and one of the most interesting things for me about the Middle Ages is how people thought about the Bible. 
Um, and so I was reading uh, a guy named St. Anselm of Canterbury, who was an Italian man who became the, the Bishop of Canterbury in England. Um, and when he described reading the Bible and meditating on the Bible and praying with it, um, they, he, he described it as if you take like a honeycomb with the wax and the honey and, and you chew on that. And the wax is good for your health, but the honey is really tasty and delightful. And so, um, so they got, they kind of gave him the name. He, he, he often talked about the verse from Psalm 34, a taste and see that the Lord is good. And he likened that to every time we open our Bible, that we, it's like a honeycomb is going into our mouth. Um, and, and I really like that. I think we can, I think as we read the Bible, we can think, oh, I've read this before. I know this. But the fact that they talked about really chewing on the Bible and digesting it, and they use such powerful images that, um, um, so I, th I think that's something we can learn from them, a delight in God's word. So that is such a beautiful word picture. Well, Dr. Smither, we are so thankful that you decided to spend this time with us once again. Hopefully it's not the last time. Well, we have to say goodbye for now. As usual, listeners have an opportunity to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's book, Church History, which includes information on the early missions to Eastern Europe. Just visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org, to enter the drawing. While you're there, you'll also find past episodes, special news, recommended readings, and more. And if you would consider making a donation to support the work of the Alliance and podcasts like this one, we'd really appreciate it. You can also be entered into the drawing by submitting your questions or comments on the website or to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Grace, Christian, and Mina, I am Emma. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History. 